Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about existence, meaning, and the unique lessons that each of us have learned in our lives. Today I continue my conversation from last week with Patrick. We talk about a couple more topics, and he starts out by courageously sharing some thoughts that he wrote down in preparation for our conversation. Let's listen. Do not allow dogma into your life. Let your guiding principles stand out amongst a horizon littered with ideas and processes, dead or buried or anywhere in between. Let these guiding principles shine by their ability to endure thoughtful, rigorous, honest, and frequent analysis. Hmm. Well, thank you. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the image that you portray in, or experienced during the uh, vision fast, mm -hmm. where I think one could argue that the dead man did not engage in those rigorous, honest, and frequent right. analysis. Or if he did, he chose not to communicate about them. Right. Yeah, he chose to keep them inside, whether or not he realized he was making that choice. In what you wrote there, can you explain how you, what the difference is between dogma and guiding principles? Mm -hmm. So in some circles, I think they could be considered synonyms. They conjure forth similar ideas. To me, I think of dogma as institutional, a lot more difficult to challenge, a lot more thought of as not to be examined as truths, mm. maybe. Whereas guiding principles, I would define them as more organic. And I think that you could make an argument that a lot of dogma, obviously, came from organic processes sure. or organic thoughts, but guiding principles to me implies more of a living document or a living process okay. than dogma. Okay. Can you think of an example of one of each? When I think of dogma, an easy example is do as I say, not as I do. Mm. I think of that as something dogmatic, mm. mostly implying to the observer that you need to engage with only the content of what I am saying as I define it. Okay. So do as I say and not as I do. Mm -hmm. As far as a guiding principle, I think of a guiding principle as, say, learn how to serve yourself while serving others is more of a guiding principle. Okay. And that is something that, were it to be challenged, you would be able to have a conversation about it without feeling threatened, which perhaps is one of the distinctions between it as a guiding principle and it as a dogma. I think so. There's a power component there, or the, the, the ability to compel right. versus okay. engage right. or okay. discuss, I yeah. would think. Dogma is 
prescriptive as to how you should behave, whereas guiding principles are perhaps more suggestive. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And they give people, they, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They accord people their own autonomy as opposed to trying to take it away from them and saying you must behave this way. You don't. You should not be allowed autonomy. Okay. A lot of that, too, is with the acceptance or maybe embracing of the idea that, you know, these lenses, again, we keep coming back to the lenses, where dogma, to me, implies one lens, whereas guiding principles suggest it would be applicable to multiple lenses, or maybe even lens independent. Yeah, whatever your lens is, because we can't rid ourselves of them fully. This is a this is a suggestion for how you might negotiate. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, thank you for mm-hmm. talking through that with me. Okay, what were you going to ask? Okay. <clears throat> so my question to you, which I have not heard you express at least, is what do you think it is that compels people to keep their wisdom inside themselves? Mm. I have said it in few words, but perhaps haven't elaborated. Or maybe I haven't thought about it that much. The words that I have used are fear and selfishness. Fear seems more common or likely, perhaps, in that the kinds of conversations, in order to talk about things that are deeply a part of what you believe, requires you to make yourself vulnerable to the people that you're talking with. It gives them the power to hurt you or to at least strike at you in some of your most vulnerable places. And I think, therefore, it's understandable why conversations about meaning happen in places like churches where everybody there is reasonably assured that the people that they're with share their core beliefs and philosophies and will not hurt them when they open themselves up. We have so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of beliefs now in society that that these kinds of conversations it just seems to me like they don't happen as frequently as they should and i and i do think it's out of fear of being hurt or fear of conflict maybe i know that i myself am fairly uncomfortable with conflict and so i have some hesitance in a lot of these conversations that i try to overcome i mean another example this is this this is this is actually a challenge with recording dead man's forest we're recording this conversation now. I talked about this in my last recording. I have not yet edited and released my conversation with Jason. And my conversation with Jason, he asked me a question about why I am not religious. And I was really a little afraid to answer it because I think this is what I said to him. Rightfully, when, when somebody physically attacks us, we have a natural tendency to 
to defend ourselves and a right to do so. We, we want to survive, so we defend ourselves against physical attacks. We, we defend our life. My big worry when I start talking about belief and religion is that people will feel like I'm attacking not just their life, but their eternal life. And how much more important is that to them? And that is not my intent ever to attack those beliefs. I just want to talk about them. <laughs> and I am not sure, I guess I am afraid of people perceiving my curiosity and my desire for open communication and my desire for everybody to, as you say, examine their own lenses and to think about those things that are most important to them as, as simple conversation as information that we can use to make better decisions and to know ourselves better and to interact with our world better but when other people perceive them as an attack I don't know what to do I don't know how to respond to that other than to stop having the conversation and that to me is a decision made out of fear so fear might be the biggest one I talked around in circles a little bit. Fear might be the biggest one. Selfishness, I... That's the one that I would say I disagree with. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with it. Um, it's a... I think it's easy to avail those terms when it would seem as though you appear to be at odds, right, with that idea. That's No, that's not what I'm thinking about. What I... I'm glad that you asked this because it's forcing me to think through some things that I may not agree with myself on. <laughs> Here's a common example that I have heard. We, out of an assumed sense of humility, could not share our gifts with the world because we aren't sure that they're worth it. The thing that I have heard suggested is that that is a sort of selfishness. And the specific example that I have heard is, think of your favorite band. Your favorite band has put in a lot of work to write and record and release and distribute songs that their fans now enjoy. What if they had said at some point along that journey, this isn't valuable enough. This isn't important enough. I'm not going to share this. I'm going to keep it to myself. Right? That is at least in, in how I've heard it said, a form of selfishness where you're refusing to share your gifts, you're keeping them to yourself, and therefore you are depriving a number of people of the chance of enjoying them. Do you have any reactions to that idea? Because I'm not sure it makes sense, but I'm not I sure it doesn't. <laughs> I understand the genesis of this you could claim that it's selfish, maybe the selfish label. That implies to me, when I think of the term selfish, to me it's a very conscious word, a conscious action. Mm. I think of, well, I don't want to give someone something because I want it. And in some sense, there is some non-conscious selfishness, which right. you've described pretty aptly in my opinion say a, an example would be defending yourself right 
you could think of that as a selfish action because sure. you're inflicting whatever on yeah. someone else. But the reason that I recoil from the selfish definition is that it is difficult for me in good conscience to come, be able to come up with a reasonable measure for selfishness when I see so much of it in myself. Mm. And some of that is a fundamental facet, obviously, self-interest, you could say. Mm, sure. But the idea of saying that someone not doing something is selfish is difficult for me to grasp. I see. And difficult for me to engage with. I see. Yeah. It is so conceptually it makes sense. Right. I, right. I, I see it conceptually. Yeah. I guess the question that raises in me is do you want to be less selfish or are you content with yourself as you currently are? Because <laughs> the example I shared is a common example in the self-help books that are so popular these days. And I think the reason most people who read self-help books read them is because they want to change something about themselves and feel like they need a kick in the butt in order to get over the fear or the resistance or whatever it is. And so those are people who do want to change something about themselves and don't know how. I think that could be interpreted as a form of selfishness. But for someone who's like, I'm good. <laughs> who are we to tell them, right, as you say, who are we to tell them that they're being selfish? Really, they are the ones who are the only valid judge of that. So I think that makes sense. In your example, you would ask the question rhetorically, but I would say that I would like to be less selfish. Yeah. Um, I identify selfish actions that I've taken, like, say, advocating for, you know, a larger salary when my quality of life is already mm. well above average, yeah. well above, especially in the context of the world. And in some sense, that is selfish. Yeah. In most senses, I might even say that's yeah. selfish. But that's something that we get into this interesting area where is self-advocacy inherently selfish or is it independent of that i guess maybe right. like in your example where you say a great artist not sharing any of his work mm -hmm. because he doesn't think it's it's an acceptable level of quality what really you're indicting is his unwillingness to self-advocate Yeah. I feel like. Yeah, I think that's true. I think. Hmm, interesting. So, from inside of that artist, the reason for his not, or her not sharing their work is they're making some justification for it. Perhaps from outside them, that could appear to be selfishness because we don't know what's going on inside their head. Yeah. 
So your, your original question, to come back to it, was what are some of the reasons that people don't do this? Choose not to. Obviously, we have chosen to do so for to try. some reasons. Other possible reasons are, I'm thinking of a couple. One, I think you're right on the money with fear being the largest. Fear is, I yeah, mean, I think fear is the biggest. The reason uh, that rules a lot of the interaction or say my hesitance to yeah. create or, or share. Right. I think fear that, that's, I think that's right on. Fear of failure, fear of producing something mediocre. I, yeah, I, I am familiar with all of those. Certainly. And I think another one is we, because of the way certainly our education system is in America, the way we are all taught to think from a very young age, we are taught to follow directions and to replicate what other people have already figured out how to do much more than we are taught to figure out our own ways of doing things. Mm. And anytime you are trying to do something that nobody has done before, you of necessity have to figure out your own way of doing things. I see this a lot in conferences and, and business conversations is one of my other jobs is I work for a, an email marketing company for bloggers. And a lot of people who want to start blogs want to be told how to do it. And there is a certain amount of absurdity in that because if you want to start a blog about something that nobody else is blogging about, nobody can tell you how to do it. <laughs> you have to figure it out for yourself. And we have an aversion to that, and I think it's because of how our education system is. I'm not sure. Maybe it's, maybe it's human nature. But I know that people who have figured out how to do something are I would I would much rather try and emulate those people than just follow the rules or follow instructions and and I just realize that that means that it's not going to work a lot of the time and stuff is I I got to fumble my way forward we see you know we see Tom, I mean Thomas Edison is like the the uh, cliche example of someone who just kept trying and trying and trying and trying and then he was successful and we today see him as successful but I'm sure that he saw himself as a massive failure for many years of his life. It's interesting that you bring that up because <clears throat> I was thinking about the historical context for a lot of actions and how it might influence our perception of ourselves and what we would what we choose to go after and the relative success rate of say ideas or or innovations mm -hmm. i think you hit on something very key there which is and i think it's fair to say that a large number perhaps a majority of people are iterators mm -hmm. they take thing they take proven systems and iterate on them to make them better right and there are innovators. Obviously, create new ideas or new associations or new processes. However, it would appear that history favors one over the other. 
Mm. And it's not surprising, in my opinion, that we hear mostly about innovators. That makes sense. Which, in some sense, I think can paint a disingenuous portrait for people because it's not unreasonable for people to want to be remembered. It's an indulgence of, you could argue, maybe the ego or any number sure. of things. But the idea of being remembered is some core, at some point probably, some genetic thing deep down yeah. for survival, you could argue. But it's what are your thought what are your thoughts on that as far as innovator versus iterator because i would claim that i am an iterator mm -hmm. and i would like to think that i am a good iterator mm -hmm. whereas i might think that you what are your thoughts on that right yeah i don't want to say an innovator as you say is more valuable than an iterator i don't intend to say that I think that what I am advocating for is that we have the ability to choose to be one or the other or both. And I think for people who feel stuck as an innovator or a worker bee or whatever, and who have in them a desire to be an iterator, but are choosing not to do that, whether or not they realize they're choosing not to do it. They are choosing not to do it out of fear or whatever reasons we talked about earlier, that they would find their lives to be more to their liking if they were able to overcome that fear. And I, I hope that this conversation maybe helps some people see that in themselves and then choose to behave differently i think maybe that's in general like what the conversation is about i think stephen stephen worley brought it up is is a an authenticity or being true to yourself and oftentimes we feel based on education or society or family or religion or whatever reason that we are kind of shuttled into a path and we may not even realize that that path is not the right path for us to be on. And we just find ourselves vaguely dissatisfied with our lives and feeling like there's nothing we can do about it when that's not true. There's something you can do about it. You just have to give yourself permission to get over your fear and to maybe go innovate. Or maybe not. Maybe you're an innovator and you don't feel like it and you want to go be an iterator. Great. Whatever. Be what you want to be. <laughs> Maybe that's the message. <laughs> I think that, and I, hopefully I'm not mischaracterizing what you're saying here, but to me that sounds like you feel that there should be some understanding that mastery is not obtained overnight or particularly, especially not in the first go or the second go yeah that is something that i think is kind of the core tenet of an iterator maybe a natural mm. maybe we'll say natural right. iterator because i i do think that we're both we're all yeah we're all of us are, are both it's just what our first inclination may be or maybe where our strengths yeah. might lead us but 
that that failure and knowledge acquisition has value even if it does not or maybe even in some sense in some cases especially when it does not create the outcome that you had expected yeah. or hoped for. yeah and there is some there is some value in directly and consciously engaging in what your expectation was and why you expected certain results right and learning how to incorporate that in your next go in your next iteration yeah. and maybe it's your next innovation who knows right. but yeah yeah you're right innovation certainly requires iteration and so i think maybe what i think the tragedy is 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 not people who iterate and iterate and iterate and never have an innovation that you know echoes through the centuries <laughs> that's fine we don't really have control over that there's a large amount of luck as to whether or not the things that we try succeed or not in the way that we intended them to certainly most of them succeed differently than we intended them to at least in part yeah i guess the the story of the dead man's forest is more speaking to what I see as a great tragedy of someone who wanted to do something, could have done something, and didn't. Because that's something you never get back. You don't get a second go-round at life, as far as we know. <laughs> so, yeah. I think one of the beauties, what my largest takeaway of the dead man's forest has been is learning to understand and embrace the fear of not wanting to change because that is natural mm -hmm. and in some sense very um, integral part of our lives but in that understanding arming yourself and equipping yourself with processes to overcome that fear when yeah. it is deemed reasonable or when it is deemed um, possible i guess maybe even and obviously that is dependent on each individual but right. that is what i take from it well i am i mean it's very I'm very glad to hear that, that you've gotten that out of it. I hope that it has helped you out in some way. It's why we do the work, or why I do the work anyway. So thank you for saying so. Patrick and I covered one more topic of conversation, but in the interests of keeping today's episode to the standard length, I'm going to stop here. I hope that something that he and I talked about spoke to you as well. And then maybe you got a new perspective on something or can bring something from our conversation back to your life and use it. Thanks for listening today and always. And of course, if you want to share any of those thoughts that you had while listening or over the course of the next week's thoughts and conversations of your own, feel free to reach out to me 
There's a contact form on my website, deadmansforest.org. Until next week, bye-bye.